We call this session, uh, you know, Vision 2020, uh, because what we wanted to bring to you were people that were working at the cutting edge and developing the new things for cataract surgery, corneal transplant surgery, and for retinal work. Now, there are a lot of different phases of retina we could cover uh, where there are important new developments going on. But in terms of people with poor vision, either RP or retinitis pigmentosa or macular degeneration, one of the questions is, where, how are we going to get people vision who have these problems? And there's a classic divide that is between people who say, gee, stem cells are going to be the answer, and there are a lot of different groups throughout the world working on stem cells. And there has been another group that has been headed up by a number of people, and USC has been one of the major centers for this, that are looking at the artificial retina. How do you get vision? How do you get people to see if their retina is destroyed, but the optic nerve and the rest of the system is working okay? And we're very Lucky to have Dr. Rajat Agrawal, who is working at USC Doheny and is working on this project. He's the director of the Center for Retinal Degenerative Diseases, and he's the study director for the Artificial Retina Implant Project. And so I wish you'd give him a nice hand. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Rajat Agarwal, as Dr. Nesbhan mentioned. By the way, thanks for inviting me over. Uh, I don't know whether Susan is in here, but she's been in touch with uh, me on email, so thanks, thank, uh, thanks to her as well. Um, I'm going to be – my name is a bit difficult to pronounce, so you know, for, for the sake of uh, ease, you can call me or refer me to as Raj, R-A-J. So some people call me uh, as Rahat and this and that, so <laughs> it's better to be called as Raj. Uh, I'm going to start off with some uh, – a video. Um, I hope this, this is a sound system in this one. Would somebody be able to? No. Yeah, there's, there's some sound in the video, so. Okay, oh, anyway, so um, we'll just go ahead and. Um, uh, this is actually uh, the patient, uh, the first patient who got the implant uh, at USC. Her name is Kathy Blake, as the video shows up there. Um, she's the first patient in the world to have uh, been implanted with a second-generation device, uh, which we call as the Argus II implant. What we're trying to show on the video is uh, retina, which looks pretty much normal, and then uh, retina, which looks abnormal. All the dark patches that uh, uh, is appreciated on the retina are basically um, damage in a patient with retinitis pigmentosa. So uh, just to start off with a disclaimer before we go into details, um, the biggest disclaimer I would probably say is I've got a terrible Indian accent, so I hope you <laughs> go along with me. In case you have a problem, just raise your hand, ask me questions, and I'll, be, I'll, I'll try and answer that. In case you're not able to understand something, let me know, and I'll try and repeat it. Uh, just to mention, we are uh, pretty much funded by uh, uh, some of the organizations like the National Eye Institute, the Department of Energy, and the National Science Foundation. Uh, Doheny at USC is, or was rather, the surgical site. Um, and the company that works and makes the device for us is called Second Sight Medical Products, which is based in Southern California. And we have a lot of organizations that work with us, universities as well as federal government uh, departments, that are working with us to try and develop this implant in, in time. So let's go talk about some statistics, which is a great day to talk about some numbers here. Um, <clears throat> There are about 2.5 million people in this country who have low vision, and we are talking of low vision of less than 20 to 100 and a visual field of less than 20 degrees. The big two, as Dr. Nesbun mentioned, so the big two, uh, as was mentioned earlier, is macular degeneration and retinitis pigmentosa. And uh, macular degeneration is a pretty much of a common problem in, in, in this country, and unfortunately, it is not decreasing. It is still, and the numbers are un unfortunately increasing as, as days go by. And it is said that by about 2020, which is the symposium's name as well, Vision 2020, we would have about 3 million people, Americans, with wet macular degeneration or geographic atrophy, which are the, basically the end point of, of macular degeneration and uh, which lead to a lot of visual problems uh, with time. Also, if you look at the numbers of people around the world, 
We have about more than 10 million people in this country who have a major problem related to macular degeneration and retinitis pigmentosa. So, uh, you know, uh, the question that came up is, can we do something for these patients who have advanced um, uh, visual problem? I mean, people who have totally gone blind and they're not able to see well at all because there is no treatment available for those patients. What do we do for them? So people started thinking about that. So we'll just go through a little bit of details about what are the artificial vision implants that we have in the field which will help patients see again. And the biggest thing which started off this field was called as a cortical implant. As the name suggests, you have the implant placed on the brain itself, on the occipital cortex. We also had an implant which was placed around the nerve, the optic nerve which connects the eye to the brain. And then we have the retina implant which basically goes inside the eye during surgery and then we can place it either on the surface of the retina, we place it behind the retina or called subretinal implant or we do something uh, making a pocket in the white portion of the eye and putting the device inside the eye. So that's called transcoroidal. The field actually started in the 1930s when a German neurosurgeon by the name of Dr. Forrester, uh, he was operating on a patient who was apparently accidentally stimulated. His, his occipital cortex was accidentally stimulated. And the patient after the surgery mentioned that he could, he could see spots of light, which was defined by Dr. Forrester as phosphine. You know, some of you may have noticed on the television screen, especially when you go closer to it, you see spots of light. That is what is a phosphine. And, or a pixel, actually. That's how we describe it as a pixel. Some of the research that has uh, led to uh, some kind of a result where people have said that if about 600 electrodes are placed on a de device which is about one centimeter square area and we place it on the cortex, a patient might be able to see almost 20-30 vision, so which is a huge thing. We are talking of a patient who's completely blind, if you place a device on the patient, he's going to see 20-30 vision and also would be able to see, uh, would be able to read uh, almost like news le uh, newspapers. So that led to a fact that Dr. Brindley in 1960s actually went in and implanted a patient with a device which had about 80 electrodes. He went in and implanted a device on the visual cortex. This patient did well uh, in terms of the fact that he was able to use this device on a routine basis. The visual acuity increase was not really very significant, but he did, he did kind of use the device for a few years. So what are the advantages that we have with the cortical implant as versus to some other implants that I'm going to talk about later? Most problems uh, in, in um, you know, when you have a patient come into the clinic, most patients who are gone, uh, you know, have significant visual impairment due to uh, retinitis pigmentosa, macular degeneration, uh, diabetic retinopathy, glaucoma, they will do well with uh, a, a cortical implant. But the big question that we have is we are actually dealing with the brain. We're dealing with neurosurgery here. So when you're trying to place a device on the cortex, there are issues that can come up during surgery. One of the biggest one is bleeding. There can also be infections because you're placing an artificial device close to the brain. And there also is a risk of seizures because a patient is getting electrical current into the brain. So the patient can have seizures uh, over time. Also, there have been other problems uh, in terms of using the cortical implant. One of them is called confusion, wherein when you stimulate a point on the, on the brain, it does not denote to a single point in space. And to, to understand this, if I'm looking at a person in front of me, that person is single, right? But because of the multiple stimulation that happens in the brain, I might see that person as two people or something like that. So there's a lot of confusion that occurs in terms of uh, stimulation at the brain level. And also, you cannot define the distances between two objects in space, which is uh, what is defined as spatial resolution. So these are the major problems with cortical implant that we face. So unfortunately, the field, even though it started in the 1960s, has not really progressed that well. Coming closer to the eye, uh, people have been trying to put devices around the optic nerve, and uh, I'm sure most of you know the optic nerve, where it is located and stuff. So basically, people are trying to put a device around the optic nerve. And this work was started by Dr. Varad in Belgium, and he had a, a lady, a nurse working in his clinic who was blind because of retinitis pigmentosa, and she actually became the first patient for him. So they had this electrode cuff. You know, some, uh, when, we, when we check our blood pressure in the clinic, you have this thing around your arm. Something similar was placed around the optic nerve in this patient, and she managed to say that she could see visual percepts or she could see spots of light 
when the electrodes were uh, stimulated. Again, uh, let's talk about some problems here. We're talking of huge number of nerve fibers that are going through the optic nerve. And if you have multiple fibers in the optic nerve and you stimulate something close to it, you're going to create problems of confusion for the patient. So that is a big problem in, in the optic nerve implant. Also, you're dealing with surgical, something similar to the cortical implant. You have a device sitting close to the, you know, to the brain, literally, and that may lead to a lot of problems in, in the patient over time. There's a group in Japan which has started doing what is called as AV-DUNE. It's a new technique where they actually go inside the eye and put electrodes into the optic nerve. And they've done some patients in Mexico, and apparently these patients have shown some results, some good results. But again, this is not something that is going to give good uh, resolution to a patient in time. So we're going, to, we're going to wait and watch. So coming to the retina implant that we work at USC and other places now around the country and in the world, what led to this, uh, this, this particular field was there was a patient with advanced retinitis pigmentosa whose eyes were donated after death. And when the retina was analyzed in that patient, it was found that if you look at the inner retina and the outer retina, as we probably know, the outer retina is where the photoreceptors or the rods and cones are. In retinitis pigmentosa, the outer retina gets destroyed. So the rods and cones get destroyed. There is no more functioning from the rods and cones. But in that particular patient, the bipolar cells, which are an important part of the nerve, the system, as well as the ganglion cell layer, 30% of the ganglion cell layer was found to be still structurally normal. Similarly, the bipolar cells were found to be normal about 80%. So you're looking at a good number of cells which are still appearing functional. And that, that led to the fact, or uh, led to the kind of a thought, uh, if we stimulate the retina in these patients, are we going to create an electrical impulse or a visual impulse which will allow a patient to see? And that, that is what led to the um, uh, work in, in uh, artificial retina as far as retina is concerned. Similar results were also found in macular degeneration patients. So basically two big diseases which do not unfortunately have treatments for cure at this point, macular degeneration and retinitis pigmentosa, have shown histopathologically that we could potentially do something to them because of the structural integrity that they have. Other thing that happened is we have all heard about cochlear implant or the artificial hearing aid that people use nowadays, which is pretty much common uh, in, in the uh, ear clinics. We have people using artificial hearts. You know, dialysis machines have been there for years and decades. ECG or EKG and pacemakers have been, you know, a routine thing now. So all these biomedical implants in the field have made it possible for people to think that you could also, you know, create an artificial eye, literally, so that patients can start seeing again. So that was a basic background which led to the field. So there are various approaches to the retina implant. We are talking of a device which is going to go and sit close to the retina. So you're basically going to operate on a patient put this device closer to the retina. So we have various ways. As I mentioned earlier, the epiretinal implant is something which is sitting close to the retina on the surface of the retina from inside. The subretinal implant is basically, as the name suggests, sits behind the retina. So it goes into the space behind the retina. And there are various uh, different uh, organizations around the world that work. We at Doheny are working on the epiretinal implant where the device sits on the surface of the retina, just, just to mention that for clarity. So what are the advantages that we have as far as epiretinal implant is concerned? And this picture shows that the device is inside the eye as it shows you're sitting on the surface of the retina, and we also stick it or fix it to the retina with a metal tack currently where we actually go in during surgery and fix it so that it stays put on the retinal surface. The biggest advantage is that we do not really need photoreceptors for this approach at all. You can work without the photoreceptors. The other big advantage that we have is that because the device is not in physical contact with the retina at all. So it's a little bit away, about 500 microns away. It is not causing any damage because of touch. It is not causing any damage because of any heat that is being produced during the uh, implant working. And also the big thing is the whole software for this device is sitting outside the eye. So you can actually customize the software for each patient, which is a big thing, uh, as I'll try and tell you later. The big problem is obviously engineering. Uh, uh, surgery is all, uh, also a little difficult, but engineering complexes that, uh, you know, uh, the guys who work with us, they've had a tough time trying to, you know, generate these kind of softwares that will help the patient see again. Uh, as far as subretinal approaches are concerned, there was a company in Chicago called Optobionics, which was in, um, uh, which was functional uh, some years back. Unfortunately, what happened was the results where they placed a device, a small little device behind the retina or subretinally, 
that device showed pos- false positive results and the company went defunct. So they are not anymore in, in function. The comp- uh, there's another company called Retina Implant in Germany. They're actually a competitors, and they've been working on this device where they're implanting patients with, with, their, uh, with their device, where the results are pretty much uh, reasonably good, so to say, at this point of time. So the work that we have done started about in 2002. Uh, obviously, we did not start the actual work in 2002. The work started in the um, almost 1990s or 19, late 1980s. So it's, it's been about 20 years. But the device took uh, almost that long to, you know, to, to be kind of accepted by FDA to go into patients. So the first patient was implanted in 2002. The Argus One was a first-generation device. Some of you may have heard about this or read about this or even seen some of the videos that I'm going to show you, which had 16 electrodes. Now, this device was based on the cochlear implant, the artificial hearing implant that we, uh, that we have uh, you know, going into patients. So we were given permission by FDA to do about 10 patients. So we did about six, and we have followed up these patients for more than five years now. Two of the patients, unfortunately, have passed away, but we still have the other three patients, who are, uh, four patients, rather, who are still following up with this device. We started the Argus 2, which is a device which has 60 electrodes. You know, the first generation has 16 electrodes. The next generation device had 60 electrodes, which started uh, in uh, 2007, and we currently have about 32 patients around the world. There are seven or six centers in the U.S. There's one, one more in Mexico, and there are four centers in Europe. So there are about um, uh, six and four and one, uh, about 11 sites around the world. And we have about 30, 32 patients so far uh, who are being followed up. So a video from the first generation device. Uh, this gentleman is the first person in the world ever to receive this implant. Uh, he was blind because of retinitis pigmentosa for about 30 years. And as in the video, for some, some of you may appreciate it, you can actually see him show that he can read the letters H and I, or H and I and say hi uh, on the video. In, in the first generation device, FDA would not allow us to take this, uh, allow the patients to take the device at to, I mean, uh, for use in the social setting, so they would come into the clinic and be examined and tested in the clinic itself. So from, uh, from the uh, first generation device, we moved on to the next generation, which was Argus 2, uh, which was a 60 uh, electrode device. So retinal surgery basically fixed the device on the retinal surface, as I mentioned earlier. There was a video camera on a pair of glasses, so the patient had to wear those glasses and which would communicate with the implant inside the eye. Post-operatively, after the surgery was done, this patient would be followed up for about 15 days post-operative care and stuff like that. And once the patient was good enough in terms of following up on, on testing, then we would do calibration of the electrical parameters. So like I said earlier, each patient needed specific things to be done in the software, so we had to bring the patient into the clinic and do some testing to find out what is the best way we could give the patient the best vision possible. And also, all these patients required low vision training and rehabilitation. And then, this, because FDA allowed the patients to take this device at home for home use, so that's, that, that was a big thing with the Argus to implant. So what does this do? Basically, the implant as such is passing electrical current. You know, you, you have a, uh, an image in front of you. The camera converts that image into electrical impulses, which pass into the eye onto the device, and that device stimulates the retina. And so what it basically does is it is bypassing the defective rods and, uh, rods and cones. It basically is, you know, acting as, as um, artificial photoreceptors. The data that is going in is all wireless, so you don't really need to have a cable coming from the eye outside. It's totally wireless. So, you know, you can remove the glasses and go to sleep and then come and get up in the morning and put on the glasses and start seeing again. Similarly, the data from inside the eye is also coming out so that we can grab all that information for testing purposes over time. Um, these uh, stimulation uh, on, the, on the electrodes which are sitting on the retinal surface actually create the visual percepts in the patient. So that once the camera is turned on, once the whole system is turned on, then the patient starts to say that he or she is able to see spots of light over time which become much better. So what are the inclusion criteria? At this point of time in the U.S., uh, for the FDA has allowed us only to use patients who, I mean, uh, we have to include patients only with retinitis pigmentosa, and that too, patients with advanced uh, retinitis pigmentosa. Patients over 25 years of age, initially when we started this trial, it was 55 and above, and now it's 25 and above. The people have to stay within two hours of the surgery site, so you actually need to, you know, to be within two hours of driving distance from the site. So if you live in L.A., a wine is fine. 
um, that way. Uh, but there are other sites in the U.S., and I'm going to show you some of them. But there are other parameters that, you know, that are different because European uh, parameters are different, so there are other characteristics involved. But most important is we also need to test the patient when the patients come to the clinic. We need to test the patient to find out whether they have a positive electrically evoked response. So we need to be sure because that will indicate that the optic nerve is functional in those patients, which will help us take the patient in for surgery. And also we need to know that this patient has had sight before because to appreciate sight, you need to know what sight is. So that's the reason why we need to know whether the patient had sight before the sight went, uh, went away. Uh, what are we testing in these patients? We are testing the visual acuity. Uh, obviously, it's not looking at, we're not looking at 2020 uh, vision at this point of time, but hopefully over time that may come up. But we are looking at visual acuity in the range of 20 by one, uh, uh, 1200 or so. We're looking at safety of the device. We want to follow the patients up for a, for a few years to see if there's any damage that can happen to the device as well as to the eye. Secondary outcome measures we are looking at is activities of daily living. And there's a funny story I'm going to tell you later. We also look for quality of life and mobility uh, from these patients. <coughs> Excuse me. There are, like uh, I mentioned, that there are various sites around the world that are currently involved. So we have about six centers in U.S. One was in Mexico. We are not recruiting any more patients there. And there are four sites in Europe where we are doing these trials. Currently, we are not recruiting any patients. But over time, we will restart again. So... Um, as far as the implanted patients are concerned, we have about 32 patients around the world. Median age is about 58 plus minus 10 years, and we have uh, about 21 males. So patients have been followed up for about 18 months uh, on an average. Uh, uh, the total number of years that these patients have had this implant is about 45 years. So if you look at the number of years that these patients uh, have had the implant, it's about 40, 45 years, which is a great amount of data that we can uh, learn from it. The big thing is there's been no device failure. None of these devices have failed, which is, you know, it's like a pacemaker thing. If you put in a pacemaker and the pacemaker fails, it's going to be a big deal, right? So we are also testing for the same thing in the implant. One implant uh, had had some intermittent problem about connection between the camera and the implant per se inside the eye, but that has been corrected. As far as the numbers are concerned, we have about 96% of electrodes. The number of electrodes, as I mentioned earlier, was about 60 that is going inside the eye. So none of these electrodes have got, gotten damaged over time. And we are, again, looking at about 45 years of follow-up in these patients. What about the uh, performance? So every patient sees spots of light once we stimulate, once we start the camera. So every patient is able to see spots of light. And basically, in terms of when you look at uh, the system, uh, the retina system per se, and I'm sure Henry can talk more about that, we are all looking at spots of light. So we basically amalgamate all the spots of light to see uh, vision. So since patients are seeing spots of light here, we believe that over time patients are going to get only better in terms of appreciating what they are uh, seeing in front of them. And all patients use the system at home. So again, like I said earlier, this is a positive point compared to Argus-1 implant. Some of the testing that we do in these patients is we ask patients to look at a square on, on, a, on a display screen. The square is about three inches uh, both ways. Uh, we do the testing with the system on, meaning the camera is on and camera is off, just so that we, we know for sure that the patient is not, uh, you know, seeing things without uh, the system working. About 96% of patients have been able to see much better with the system on. So that's, again, a great outcome. We're also looking at direction of motion. So we have a band of light which goes across, which is about 1.5 inches wide. It tends to move in different directions, and we ask the patient what is the direction of motion to try and test for that. We're also asking patients to, to walk on a straight line. Uh, so we draw a line on, on, the, on the floor, and the patient has to follow that. We also create an artificial door for patients, and the patient has to go and touch it. So basically to try and replicate activities of daily living here. So that is what we are also doing. And we also have a patient walk a line and then take a 90-degree turn so that you know, we, can, uh, we can kind of uh, test the patient for that. So here's a video of a patient who is reaching out to an artificial door in front of him. In this particular patient, he has a cane in his hand because he was more comfortable using it, and there's a person walking behind him just in case he, he stumbles. And as you see, he has to kind of wait a little bit to, to scan to see what he sees in front of him, and then he goes and touches the, the screen which replicates the door. Similarly, in this one, we are showing a, a straight line with a 90-degree turn, and the patient is walking down that line. And then as you watch... Hopefully, he'll make a turn. 
So one thing that you notice on uh, uh, when you look at the patient is the patient's head keeps moving around. It's scanning. So the reason being the number of electrodes are less. So the amount of information that the patient gets is pretty limited as compared to what you know uh, people with normal vision do. So that's the reason why the patient has to spend some time trying to understand what is going on here. So uh, we also have the patient test on grating visual acuity, which is pretty much something similar to what we uh, do uh, for vision testing in the clinic. So patient has to sit in front of a screen where there are uh, uh, lines which you know come in four different directions, and the patient has to tell us uh, about the basically make out the difference between the the grate, the grating. What we've done is in the Argus one, which is 16 electrode device, the patient the best vision that we uh, managed in this patient was 20 by 400, a uh, 4,000. August 2, we have achieved about 20 by, okay, 20 by 1,260, so which is great. Uh, about seven patients have shown improvement in grading visual acuity uh, over time. And none of these patients actually have that kind of vision with the system off. So some videos just to show you that, the, unfortunately, there's no sound here, but uh, just believe me if you can, uh, that the patient is going to say the number. So she's looking at the, at the numbers that we're projecting for her, and she's uh, basically been able to uh, recognize what the number is, the so number three and eight. Similarly, if we go on to uh, alphabets, these are huge. I mean, we don't normally test patients in the clinic with these kind of large letters, but uh, in the circumstances that we deal here, we have to show them large alphabets too. And for, for people who are followers of Dr. Seuss, is a cat in a hat example here. Uh, just so that uh, patient, patients have been actually able to read this. So this is, again, a uh, good thing. And this is a gentleman uh, who's actually reading. He's got some, some, something like an index card in his hand, and he's trying to read out the numbers. So, All right, so we, as I mentioned earlier, we are actually testing patients for activities of daily living. So we ask, you know, people have been able to, the patients have been, subjects have been able to tell us that they can find utensils around the house. They've been able to locate parked cars and moving cars. They've also been able to, uh, there's one uh, funny example here was one gentleman from Dallas. Uh, he mentioned that he was able to, his wife actually asked him to uh, test on the lawn, uh, you know, when the laundry came out said, why don't you check for dark uh, socks versus light socks? And he did that, and he was you know, able to do that very well. So we actually included that as a testing for activities of daily living. And rest, as I mentioned earlier, there were 21 male patients, and they've all been complaining since that time that they have to keep uh, uh, sorting the laundry. But, you know, they, the people have been using this at work, so they are able to recognize that people are walking up to them and stuff like that. So, you know, it's pretty much an uh, improvement in terms of activities of daily living as we go along. So the clinical experience that we have so far is that we have about 32 patients who have been implanted with electrodes of 60 uh, electrodes, and we aimed at demonstrating safety and efficacy in this particular project that is still ongoing in Argus 2, and uh, about 65 patient years of combined clinical experience so far. Uh, one question that keeps, uh, you know, people keep asking is how safe are these implants? Are these really safe? You're putting something inside the eye, which is pretty much a small little thing, and you're putting devices inside the eye. So we've done testing on these devices over time, and we have, uh, you know, what we do is longevity testing, where we place devices into a, a similar kind of a situation as is prevalent inside the eye. And these devices have been shown to be functional for about 25, 30 years, which is, you know, pretty much of a good timeline. We also looked at the biocompatibility issues, so the device per se should not cause damage to the eye as such. So that has been proven. We also have the fact that the eye does not damage the, the device over time. So that's another important thing that we wanted. Why do we say that the retina implant is much better than a cortical implant? And as I mentioned earlier, you know, doing a cortical surgery is obviously difficult, fraught with a lot of problems. But the big advantage is that most of the visual processing in, in the humans is done at the retina level. So if you place something close to the retina, it's definitely going to give you better visual acuity in time. Also, it's less morbid and uh, mortality-related issue here versus putting something in the brain and potentially causing problems with death. And then, obviously, uh, ophthalmic surgery. We, we are not going to be doing the surgery in the brain. So uh, let me quickly go to the last uh, slide here. And uh, so basically what we have done so far is we've shown that it's safe and efficacious, and we are also applying for a European CE mark at this point, and we're going to wait, depending on that, we'll apply for an FDA clearance over time. So thank you so much. Are you, are you currently accepting people for clinical trial? Uh, we uh, we had the, I mean, FDA has not allowed us to do any more recruiting at this point of time, so we're waiting for that to come by, so hopefully in the next six months or so. Very good. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Dr. Agarwal.
I see a number of faces that were here this morning, uh, and I want to introduce Dr. Claussen again, who is going to talk about stem cells and maybe where they are. All right, so on. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So thank everybody for hanging in there. We're, this is the end of the day, so um, I'll try not to savor this too long. Um, so now we're going to talk about stem cells. So this is going to be a biological approach. Um, it's going to have different uh, challenges and, and uh, potentialities. Um, so repairing the retina from a biological standpoint, there's two basic approaches. Uh, one approach uh, to introduce new treatments to the retina does not involve stem cells necessarily, and that is advanced drug delivery. There are compounds known as growth factors, um, and these can actually preserve retinal cell types uh, or cells elsewhere in the body without necessarily introducing a cell. Um, so if we could just get these growth factors into the eye, we might be able to save the cells from dying in the first place. Um, and that does appear to be the case in animals. Um, furthermore, um, how do stem cells apply to that? Well, we could actually use the stem cell to deliver the growth factor. So stem cells make these growth factors to begin with, and we can also genetically modify them to overexpress those growth factors. So stem cells could have a role even as little delivery boys bringing this growth factor into the eye. Um, but then there's the question of cell replacement. If your retinal photoreceptors die, the rosin cones die, then um, you're kind of out of luck because they don't normally replace themselves the way they do in, say, a, a fish or a lower vertebrate. So if we're going to replace those photoreceptors, we need to do it by some other strategy. And one way to do that is to bring in the cells that normally make photoreceptors during your normal development uh, from embryo into fetus and as we grow up. Something has to put those photoreceptors there in the first place, and it's something called a retinal progenitor cell, and that's what we focus on. It's, it's a subset of stem cells. Um, so what is a stem cell? Um, a stem cell basically fulfills two basic criterion. One of those is that the stem cell can make more stem cells. The reason this is important is because of the second fundamental property, and that is that a stem cell can differentiate into all the body types. Back up for a moment. If, if the stem cell couldn't make more of itself, who's going to replace it when it differentiates into those body types? So the stem cell has to be able to do two things, replace itself and replace everybody else. Um, that's a big job, but somebody's got to do it. And since those mature cells are doing everything else, you know, in some ways the stem cell has its job, and that's just to, to make new cells to replace mature cells that are gone. Um, now, having said that, there are many different types of stem cells, and this is a point I like to discuss because it's really helpful for the audience when they hear about something stem cell in the news. I recommend first trying to place in your mind which kind of stem cell is this. And for that, I'm not trying to make you memorize 200 different types of stem cells, but just consider a spectrum of stem cells. At one end, we have embryonic stem cells that are very immature and can make any cell type and can grow forever. So they can do anything, but they're like a blank slate, and they don't have any training on how to do it. So at the other end, we have the adult stem cells. They can't do everything, but they are highly educated, and they know how to do one thing very well. Uh, and I will give you examples of this. But basically, stem cells are going to fall into this continuum somewhere between an embryonic stem cell, which is known as a true stem cell, and an adult stem cell, which is more like a tissue-specific progenitor cell. And what that means is it's designed for one task and one task only. Um, but it's very good at that one task. And you don't have to supervise it like any adult. Hopefully. 
so here we see how the relationship to the type of stem cell and the normal human development plays out. Um, we all start as a fertilized egg, develop into an early embryo that's just a ball of undifferentiated cells. So at the beginning, we are composed of a ball, a microscopic ball of embryonic stem cells. We have no head, legs, or anything. We're just a ball of stem cells. And that's where embryonic stem cells come from. You take that ball of stem cells with no brain, no eyes, no heart, nothing, and you break it up in a dish, and it becomes a colony of embryonic stem cells because that's all it is. You can subsequently differentiate those, and if you left it to be an embryo, it would develop into a fetus, which has eyes and organ systems and the whole bit. Um, and once you start to have these different tissue types, the cells that are forming the eye or the brain, these are your tissue-specific stem cells, adult stem cells, or progenitor cells, as they're also known. So those cells are restricted now into forming the tissue or organ that they're assigned to make. Um, and here's just some examples growing in the dish. In the upper right, you see a colony of embryonic stem cells. It's that round plaque-like thing. It, it, if you, it looks like a little bit of salt and pepper uh, speckling there. Those are the individual cells. They're very tiny. Down below, you can see retinal progenitor cells. They're somewhat bigger. They also grow in the dish, um, but they can only make retina. Um, so why would you use an adult stem cell? Think, why would you hire an adult person? Because they're educated, they do one thing very well, and they can do it without supervision. Um, if you hire a kid, you've got a big job ahead of you. You have to raise this kid, you have to train this kid, you have to educate this kid, and then hopefully he'll uh, be a rocket scientist or whatever else you want him to be, but you've got a big job ahead of you. So if we're trying to institute a therapy in the near term, we'd rather take a fully trained adult and put them to work on the job, and that's what we do with the adult stem cell. Um, now, in terms of applying to these different types of stem cells to the eye, um, the first stem cell to mention is the corneolimbal stem cell. Uh, this is one found in the white of the eye, just around the colored part. It has one job and one job only. It's going to repopulate the clear layer on the very surface of your cornea. Um, so if you have ever bumped your eye or been hit by something that, uh, like a branch from a tree and scraped the front of your eye, you know how painful that is. You go to the eye doctor and he puts a patch over the eye, and then within a day or two it's all healed again. That's because you have these corneal limbal stem cells, and they've regrown the thin, clear layer over the front of your eye. Now, if you have an alkali burn or something terrible like that, it might kill all your limbal stem cells. Then you have the problem, you're going to go blind in that eye, not because the eye can't see, but because the limbal stem cells can't repopulate that thin, clear layer on the front. Then the eye is cloudy, and you can't see out of it, even though maybe all the wiring in the back's just fine. So that relates to this recent report out of Italy where there's a clinical trial, and they're using these limbal cells as transplants, and they're able to grow a new clear layer over the front of the eye, and the patient can see again. So this is one example of a stem cell that's in use clinically, and it's being used in the eye, and it does have benefits, and it's, it's pretty safe to use. Now, because it's an adult stem cell for the cornea, it's not going to fix your retina. So hopefully you understand how this works. It has very little potential for fixing optic nerve or retinal problems. For that, we've got to go somewhere else. So that's why we use these retinal progenitor cells. They have one job, and that is to build the retina during development. Um, and we can grow these in the dish, expand them, analyze them, and then transplant them uh, back into the retina and see what they do. Um, in animal studies, typically we like to use a fluorescently tagged stem cell because that way we can find it after we've transplanted it. Um, and we have different animal models. We don't transplant between animals because if you go from one species to another, it's likely to be rejected. So in each case, we get an, we're developing an animal model for transplantation. We need to have 
uh, a fluorescent animal as the donor source and a blind animal as the recipient. Um, but these are just examples here of uh, some green mice. These are normal mice, and these are the green ones next to it. They're easy to tell apart. And this is a green pig and a red cat. These have all been developed by using a jellyfish gene integrated into the DNA of the animal. There are no green, little green men yet that I know of, but uh, let me know if you hear about it. Um, and then so we can take cells from the, the retina of these uh, and uh, grow them in a dish and analyze them. And that's just an example of what we're spending our time doing in the laboratory. Um, but then the big part is where we transplant the cells and see what they're capable of. Um, and here you see green rodent stem cells that have integrated into the retina. The retina is not visible because it's not green. Um, but we can use different microscopic illumination to look at the host retina, and we, of course, do that. But here we're seeing just what the cells do. Here we see them integrating and looking like bipolar neurons. Here they look like a rod photoreceptor. This looks like a cluster of rod photoreceptors. And these little red things um, at the end of very thin green lines would uh, appear to be synapses made by these, this cluster of cells in the host retina. And this is important because not only do you need the photoreceptor, but you also need it to connect up to the host system to transmit that information. Just like when you were hearing about the chip, the difficult part isn't the, so much the chip, although I'm sure that's a challenge, but you have to get that information to the host visual system. You've got to make the jump. This is where that jump would be occurring with these cells. Um, and then we did a behavioral test in collaboration with quite a few different groups in uh, Harvard and over in London um, to look at whether these mice could see better. Um, and it's a long story, but we can use a, a running wheel test to um, really test whether the animals can respond to light or not. And it turns out that the animals with the transplants were more sensitive to light than the sham-treated controls. Uh, another great thing about these cells is that they're um, not particularly prone to immune rejection. Remember, if we transplant between species, there is a problem. But within a species, they seem to be well tolerated. So don't expect to be getting green pig stem cells into your eye anytime soon. Um, but human cells, we would predict, would be well tolerated based on the animal studies that we've done. Here you see some cells being grown from a green pig. And again, we can do all kinds of molecular analyses on these cells. And then transplanting these cells into the retina, we can see uh, formation of photoreceptors with different photoreceptor proteins being made by these cells after, after transplantation. Now, um, here's a newly developed cat model again. Here's the red cat. Under normal conditions, they don't look very red, but if you give them uh, ultraviolet light, like a um, you know black light, if you if you take your pet red cat to Winterland, it'll be looking just like this. And uh, we can grow these cells in a dish and uh, analyze them in much the same way I showed you previously. Um, and then after transplantation, again, remember, red cat cell is easy to spot in the blind cat retina. Um, and here we see those transplant cells making new retinal cell types. Um, but all of this would be in vain if we couldn't get cells of the same type from human. And here you see some human retinal progenitor cells isolated in the dish. And again, they express a lot of the same types of proteins that we saw in our various animal models that we've been working up all the way up to the human here. And there is some transplant data with these. First, they've been transplanted into mice. These mice are special because they have no immune system. Um, so that's why we're able to transplant them and get survival. And when we do, we see evidence of photoreceptor repopulation uh, in the retina, including uh, rhodopsin expression indicating that these cells can turn into photoreceptors after transplantation, much the way the animal models were working. Um, there is some data out of China showing that uh, cells of this type can survive transplantation into the vitreous cavity. And 
the take-home message from that is that hopefully this is evidence along the line that these cells will survive without immune suppression because that would be very beneficial when trying to bring these kinds of cells to clinic. Um, we don't want to have to give the patients a dangerous immune suppressive treatment if we can possibly avoid it. Um, and then targeted diseases. Of course, we're looking at retinal degenerations. Um, retinitis pigmentosa is an early target for us because um, of the severity of the disease and the way it's uh, restricted in its pathology initially to the loss of photoreceptors, which is the cell we think we can replace. In addition, um, retinal degenerations of this type are usually very um, amenable to neuroprotection, which is a really uh, important feature of the, the retinal progenitor cell transplantation is that it could induce neuroprotection of these photoreceptors. Um, of course, age-related macular degeneration is a more common uh, cause of retinal photoreceptor loss, so we hope can also benefit from this. It may have a role in retinal detachment. Once the retina is back on, if the photoreceptors have died, perhaps we can uh, protect or replace photoreceptors in that condition. Um, and optic nerve degenerations. We're not saying this will regrow a new optic nerve, but if the optic nerve is sick and dying, uh, these cells could act as delivery vehicles um, to help keep that nerve from dying in the first place. And then um, this work was, uh, I want to acknowledge, a, a vast array of people all over the world who contributed to uh, the work I just showed you there. And thanks for your support. Well, I'm going <clears> to... <throat> um, the question I have is, when do you think we could see a safety... We talked about clinical trials. When do you think we might see a safety trial involving uh, human retinal progenitor cells in humans? Um, okay. So we've got the cells growing. Um, you know, if we just grab somebody, we could start it in 10 minutes. But uh, seriously speaking... Um, the key here to get this going in the U.S. is to get FDA approval. To get FDA approval, you have to do um, a rather laborious series of safety studies. How long that takes depends on how long it takes to give the FDA what they want. Um, so it's really up to them. Um, and, of course, they're concerned about stem cell trials in general because of the propensity for a cell of this type to keep growing even after you transplant it. Therein lies one of the advantages to this progenitor approach over the embryonic stem cell approach, and that is that embryonic stem cells, as you recall, one of the great things about them is they grow forever. That's also one of the bad things about them. So if you don't completely purify your culture and get rid of the embryonic stem cells before you transplant uh, the cells that you want to put in there, uh, you've got a problem. So let me just clarify that a little bit. If you're growing embryonic stem cells, basically now you're faced with a two-step challenge, and that is first you grow the cells. That's the easy part. Then you have to differentiate and purify them into something like we have and then transplant. So we're skipping the embryonic part and just saying let's take retinal progenitor cells. There's no embryonic stem cells in there to begin with because these didn't come from embryonic stem cells. Uh, except a long time ago in real development. Now they're a pure retinal progenitor population. We're going to transplant those. They're going to tend to be better behaved because they don't grow forever and they do time out. Um, example of why we think this is probably going to be safer is that um, Stem Cells Incorporated is using a related cell, a neural progenitor that develops in the brain, and they have approval for use of this, at least in circumscribed clinical situations. So they have been testing those, and so far they have been safe. Now think about it. The neural progenitor has to continue to divide until it makes an entire brain. In the human, that's a big thing. Uh, the human retina is vastly smaller than the human brain. So the retinal progenitor cells tend to time out earlier than the brain progenitors. That makes them harder to grow, but it should make them even safer for use in a clinical trial. So because the FDA has already approved 
certain neural progenitors for use in humans, we think getting approval for uh, a retinal cell should be not harder than that, but you never know. There could be some big uh, event in the interim to, to make things more challenging. But um, from our standpoint, this still would involve a number of years of safety tests mandated by the FDA um, just to um, basically pose the question to them. Well, what do you think? So, so let me just say this. If you think within a year or two there might be a supply of retinal progenitor cells that could be available for an FDA safety trial. Um, well, there's already a supply that can be used in the laboratory. Um, to get a, a GMP, you know, a clinical grade of cell banked away, um, another uh, challenge there is going to be the half million or so dollars it takes to develop that stem cell bank. Um, but that's one of the things we hope to uh, start working on as early as uh, later this year. Um, and then uh, from there, we have to do, like I say, take that clinical grade cells, do the safety testing, and then go to the FDA. I, I would guess that takes a, a several years. Now, I'd like to open it up for questions from the audience. We've got about five more minutes if people want to stay. Yes, sir. Uh, so the question is, would results from the third world uh, help accelerate this process? That's a really good question. And there are, as I mentioned, results, and there's more results than I showed you. Uh, people are already testing cells like this in people. Um, the word I've had is that the FDA frowns upon that and doesn't – they think that if they accept that kind of data, it will encourage more of the same, and they don't want to be bypassed. <laughs> so um, you see what I mean? They're, they're looking to kind of punitively uh, train people to go through them instead of around them. Um, but from yours and my perspective, you know, it, it – they should take that into some consideration. I don't think that's enough necessarily because there's a question of quality control over the whole process there. Um, but I would think that if those data are are good, that it might make them relax, help them help them relax a little bit. But it's not enough to make the decision. Um, I think they still have to base it, you know. Jack Webb says, on the facts, you know, and they got to know what those facts are, and those facts have to be very standardized so that, um, you know, they're comparable to other things they've looked at. Are there any other questions? Yes, sir. Yes. Oh, well, that's a really good question. Um, because uh, the question is, would a cell like this have a role in diabetic retinopathy? Um, I hope so. Um, number one, that's a really common condition and getting commoner. Um, the reason that's not high on the list is because the more complex the problem, and typically the more common problem is the more complex one, <laughs> um, you know, the more questions you have in terms of whether it's going to work or not. It's always great if you have a good animal model, for instance, um, and we haven't looked at these um, cells in the context of an animal model. But I'm guessing that if we can take a more straightforward situation like retinitis pigmentosa, show safety and then efficacy, um, that's going to encourage people to push the boundaries and look into other conditions and see uh, what's possible there once, you know, they feel more satisfied about the basics. 